Life and love can be messy. Love isn't easy. And so we're spending a few weeks talking about the many times that we see in Scripture to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just in the Old Testament law. We also find it in the Gospels and in Paul's writings. So we're in the midst of a four-week series called Messy. Because life is messy. Love can be messy. It's not easy. And yet we're told to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're looking at some of those times that, that we find that command in Scripture. Each time there's a, there's a different context. Uh, there's, there's a different perspective on that command. And so we're spending a few weeks looking at some of those. And you remember Mr. Rogers would ask us every day, won't you be my neighbor? That question implies a very valuable truth. Think about it for just a moment because he's asking if we would agree to be his neighbor. That question implies this valuable truth, and that is that being a neighbor has less to do with where we live than it does with how we live. He says, won't you be my neighbor? See, being someone's neighbor doesn't mean that you live right next to them like the Mertzes live next to the Ricardos or Raymond's parents live next to him. Being a neighbor is something much more meaningful and powerful than that. Being a neighbor is an expression of love. And so we hear that command throughout Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, look with me at one of the times that we find that text. We're in uh, Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's important for us to remember as we get into this story, it's important for us to remember that this lawyer, in other words, he was an expert on the law. This doesn't necessarily mean he was an attorney like we think of the term. It means that he was an expert on God's law that he studied every little bit and piece of the law. And he was an expert in the best ways that the law should be applied in everyday life. And remember that he is a, a, a lawyer, an, an expert in the law, who is intentionally trying to trip Jesus up. We know that because it... it told us the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That was the reason that the lawyer asked the question. And so when he asks his question, it is a loaded question. In other words, no matter how Jesus answers that particular question, the lawyer will, will be able to, to make him look bad. The lawyer will be able to twist the words and to begin an argument and a debate. Matter of fact, we know it's a loaded question because the, the two things that he includes in his question are not logical. You see, he says, teacher, what shall I do 
to inherit eternal life. Well, you don't do anything to inherit something, right? We, we inherit something when someone in our family passes it down to us. We haven't done anything to earn it. It is an inheritance. So his question is, is illogical. It is set up in a way that he thinks he's going to be able to, to trip Jesus up. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He said to the lawyer, tell me about your law. <laughs> you know all about what's in that law. So you tell me, what does the law say about this question? How you might find real life, how you might find eternal life. You see that the first century Jews thought that they inherited eternal life just by being children of Abraham, that it was an inherited thing. And yet in his question, he said, what must I do to inherit? He wanted Jesus to say, oh, you don't have to do anything because you're already a child of Abraham. You inherited automatically. And instead of falling for a trap, Jesus says, well, you look at the law that you know so well and you tell me what does the law say? The man had asked a question of Jesus, and in his wisdom, Jesus turned around and asked a question of the lawyer. He answered in verse 27, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's very interesting about his response is that at that time, uh, the rabbis were not putting those two thoughts together. When they wrote and when they taught, that was not a part of the rabbinic tradition. People weren't putting those two laws from the Old Testament together like that. Jesus did when he taught. And so there is a very real possibility that this lawyer had heard Jesus teach before. And based on what he knew that he had heard Jesus say, the lawyer replied in a way that Jesus couldn't tell the lawyer, ah, you're wrong. He answered the way he thought Jesus expected him to answer. And he put these two laws together. You love God with every part of who you are. And you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself told us that those are the, the two most important commandments of all. Later on in in, in Scripture, we learn that if we can keep those two commandments, then all the rest of the law takes care of itself. And so the man answered the way Jesus might have expected him to answer. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 28, he said to him, You have answered correctly. 
Do this and you will live. You see, the lawyer had, had put down a trap in which he pitted doing something for salvation against inheriting the salvation that all Jews expected that they would inherit. And Jesus would have to pick one or the other. So Jesus turned it around and he said, God gave you a law, what does the law say? And the man said, well, love God and love everybody else. And Jesus said, all right, you do that and you live. Now, you and I know what is behind Jesus' statement, don't we? You and I both know that we have not fully loved God with a perfect love our whole lives. And we know that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves our whole lives. Somewhere along the way, we failed. Every one of us has failed. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, every one of us has failed to do these things and therefore we don't get to experience what he said at the end, do this and you will live. He knew what he was saying to the man. I hope the lawyer knew it too. I hope that Jesus was able to get through to the lawyer that the lawyer might understand that although the rule is love God and love everybody else, I know that I have not and cannot completely keep the rule. And so that which I think I'm going to inherit may not be mine. You see, Jesus is the only way that we can find real life. Because it is he who brings us mercy and grace. I hope the lawyer eventually found that mercy and grace once he came to realize that he could not keep this law and therefore would not have the life that he was looking for. But to help him understand and to help the rest of the people understand around him, what it would be like to love God with all of, your, your, uh, all of yourself and to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus tells a story. In verse 29, the lawyer sets it up. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus had kind of had pointed out that the man would not be able to always love his neighbor as himself and love God. And so the man thought he had found a loophole. Ah, okay. But who is my neighbor? Because I can pick my neighbors and I can pick the ones who are easy to love. You see, so Jesus, the, the law doesn't tell me who is my neighbor. So that's my loophole. That's how I get through this thing. I get to love the people I want to love. I get to call neighbor those who are easy to love. Jesus replied in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Jesus tells a story about what happened on this road, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And did you notice how it was described there? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That, that word is there on purpose because the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17, 18 miles. And that's the distance, according to one of the highway signs out here, that's the distance from west to Waco. The difference is the journey from west to Waco is basically flat. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is a tremendous descent. Jericho is some 3,300 feet below Jerusalem. And so that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17-ish miles long and it plunged down 3,300 feet or so. It was a dangerous road. It wound through the desert and wound through rocks and wound through that wilderness area and <clears throat> there were many places for robbers to hide. It was a violent place. It was not a, a safe road on which to travel at all. Matter of fact, it earned the nickname the Way of Blood because it was such a violent and scary place. Everyone feared that, that as they heard Jesus begin to tell this story, everyone feared that that could happen to them. And that the next time they travel that scary violent road, this very thing could happen to them. And so it, it piques their interest and they begin to listen carefully as he says that this man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and then left him half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of uh, priests and Levites. Think of, uh, think of priest as the, the pastor and a Levite as an associate pastor. Uh, they, they did much the same things, but there were just a few things that the priest did that the Levite couldn't. But they both were responsible for conducting um, the, the services and conducting the sacrifices and things that went on at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, there were so many priests that they did that on kind of a rotating basis. And many of them lived in Jericho. And they would travel, they would take that long walk to Jerusalem, uphill, by the way, to Jerusalem. And when their service was done, they would then walk back down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so the fact that it said the priest was walking down, we assume that he had finished his work at the temple and was most likely returning home in Jericho simply because there are a lot of priests who lived in Jericho and made that made that journey, if you will. And so the priest has, has done his duty at church and he's on his way home. 
and he sees one in need. It's, it's interesting that it says that he passed by on the other side. And then the Levite came and he saw one in need and it says he passed by on the other side. You see, they went to the effort to walk around the problem, to walk around the one who was hurting, to get to the other side of the road so that they didn't have to be close to it. Now, it is possible that they had in mind that law that says that they would be defiled if they touched something dead. And so perhaps they're assuming that 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 person who's been beaten and is bleeding and was left for dead, perhaps they're assuming that, that he is dead or will die soon and that would then defile them for touching him. And so perhaps they are telling themselves that it's important to keep that law and so they're staying on the other side so that they can remain clean. However, you and I both recognize right away that in order to keep that law that, they're, that they may be thinking about, they are breaking the law that Jesus said was the big one, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. They walk around him and pass by. They go to the other side of the street so that they don't have to be close to him. And we continue the story then at a time that Jesus would have absolutely shocked his crowd. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had Compassion. Now, as soon as he said Samaritan, that whole crowd would have, would have frowned and grimaced. A Samaritan. You see, the, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans at all. And there's a long history there that goes all the way back to when the Assyrians uh, attacked the northern kingdom. And we won't take time to get into all of that history, but but, but think of it in, in these terms. The, the, the Jews understand themselves. They see themselves as the direct descendants of Abraham. They are God's chosen people. The Samaritans are half Jews and half Gentiles. Generation after generation of intermingling with other nations has created this this. A group of people, these Samaritans, and the Jews could not stand to be around them because they were half Jew, half Gentile. They were unclean. Jews called them dogs. They would never associate with Samaritans. Matter of fact, we call this story, this parable that Jesus is telling, we call it the Good Samaritan. Well, to the first century Jews, there was no such thing. To hear those two words together, uh, uh, a good Samaritan, kind of like us putting two words together, sophisticated redneck. <laughs> they, they just don't go together. A good Samaritan made no sense to them. And yet in Jesus' story, it was that good Samaritan who stopped. Again, in verse 33, I want you to notice a couple of words real carefully. 
but a Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. When the priest came, the story goes, as Jesus told the story, when the priest came, he saw the man and went to the other side. When the Levite came, he saw the other man and went to the other side. When the Samaritan came, he saw. You see, he saw the same thing that the other two guys had seen. They all saw the same thing. But while he saw the same thing they did, he had something they didn't. It said there at the end of that verse, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That's a beautiful word, by the way. The word compassion is a word that was built off of two Latin words. Come means with. You hear that in a lot of words that talk about us being together, to being with. There is, uh, there is communication, communion, companion. Uh, the, the words that have C-O-M mean with. And then the other part of that word is passion. And that word, believe it or not, means suffering. Often you hear about the passion of the Christ, the passion of the crucifixion, the passion of Calvary. Those words are saying that they're, they're remembering when Jesus died and he suffered. So compassion then means to suffer with, to have compassion on someone is to feel their pain. Frederick Beekner put it so beautifully, compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live in someone else's skin. It is the knowledge that they can never really be, that there can never really be peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Now, I didn't read that real smoothly, but Beekner's point is beautiful, isn't it? That compassion is that ability to, to, to see what it's like to live inside someone else's skin. And it's the knowledge that, that I cannot be at peace or have joy until I make sure that you are at peace and have joy. Compassion, a powerful word to describe the love of neighbor. And so what did this man with compassion do? We continue Jesus' story in verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You see, it wasn't just enough for this neighbor to say to the man on the ground, Dude, I'm sorry, it looks like that hurt. 
He felt the man's pain. And it says that he got down on the ground to bind the man's wounds. He cleaned up those wounds, blood everywhere. Just imagine the mess. It had to have been a grotesque scene because Jesus' story, he said that those who, who beat him up left him to die. And here he's bleeding out all over the place and this Samaritan binds up his wounds and, cure, and, and, and takes care of him, uh, pours the ointment on him to, to try to help begin the healing process. And then it says that he not only took care of him in all that mess, but he picked him up and he put him on his own animal. Now that that man is on the animal, what that means is that Sam is going to have to walk. The Good Samaritan doesn't have a ride anymore. Talk about messy. This man got into the mess. He took care of the one in need. And he sacrificed a lot to make it happen. When he got to the end, he paid for what he could. He told the man, you take care of the rest and I'll be back and I'll pay you the rest. Do you remember our definition of love? We've talked about it many times through the years, but especially last week, we talked about it quite a few times. Love is the voluntary, sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Well, I don't know of a better picture than what we see in this story. The voluntary, he didn't have to stop and others didn't stop. He chose to stop. He saw one in need and he stopped. He had compassion. Sacrificial, look at the mess he was willing to get into and look at the, look at the sacrifices that he was willing to make in order to help this one. The word commitment. He says, I'm going to make sure this man gets to the inn and is cared for. And then he says to the innkeeper, you take care of him and I will be back. There is a voluntary sacrificial commitment. Why? To make sure that that guy is okay. A voluntary sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. That's what love is all about. And look at verse 36. Which of these? The story is ended. Jesus looks into the eyes of the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? I love what Jesus does there because he flips it again. The lawyer thinks he's got Jesus and Jesus flips it and gets the lawyer. I love this because you remember what the lawyer's question was that started this whole long story? The question was, who's my neighbor? Now, did you see what Jesus did? He flipped it and he said, now, which one was a neighbor to the one who was hurting? You see, Jesus Jesus found a way to get across to this guy. It's not about you figuring out who you have to love. It's about you figuring out, are you going to be loving? It's not about who is your neighbor. It's about, will you be a neighbor? He flips it in such an amazing, powerful way. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? In verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. 
And we're back to Mr. Rogers' question, aren't we? Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? It's not about figuring out which neighbor you have to love. It's about figuring out are you going to be a neighbor who loves? Charles Swindoll once pointed out a simple truth about this story that we don't want to miss. He said, what you are determines what you see, and what you see determines what you do. There were two who came by and saw dirty, messy, and they went on their way. There was one who came by and he saw pain. He saw need. And because of what he saw, that, that affected what he did. Grateful to Swindoll. What, what you are determines what you see. And what you see determines what you do. As people of God, that's who we are. As people of God, we care about what God cares about. That means we care about people. Who we are determines what we see. Do we see the need or do we see an interruption? Who we are determines what we see. What we see determines what we do. When we see the need, what do we do? In 1 John chapter 3 at verse 17, we read, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Since we are God's people, we have his love. If we have his love, how can we see someone else in need and ignore the need? The reason those two great commandments are linked together in Scripture is because when you love God with everything you've got, you will want to love others as well, even when it's messy. Martin Luther once said, faith alone justifies. Yet faith is never alone. It is never without love. If love is lacking, neither is there faith but mere hypocrisy. In other words, you say, I, I'm not saved by loving other people. I'm saved because I have faith, and that is absolutely true. However, if you have faith and do not love others, I question your faith to begin with. Because the people who are born of God have who he is. God is love. And we love because he loved. When Aaron Barg was three months old, a hernia left him in constant pain three months old and he was in constant pain his parents Steve and Susan Barg uh, tried and tried to, to to find surgeons who would help him and they did eventually find surgeon 
who would help, but the problem was they couldn't find an anesthesiologist who was willing to help. Because you see, little, little Aaron not only had that hernia, he also had a weak heart and weak lungs and an underdeveloped brain. He was deaf and legally blind. Doctors told the Bargs that Aaron would most likely die within a year. If he survived beyond that time frame, his life would have little quality. They said he'd never speak or walk or feed himself. For most anesthesiologists, the risk was too high. They felt any operation could kill Aaron. After several attempts, Susan Barg finally asked an anesthesiologist if he would like to hold Aaron. And he did. He held him for almost an hour. And then he agreed to assist in an operation. Since then, that same anesthesiologist has helped in many more operations for Aaron. Ms. Barg says, he holds Aaron and he becomes a human being. Not a statistic, not a piece of medical research on a piece of paper, but a human being with a name who responds to touch and cuddling and love. See, there are hurting people all around us. If we will but allow ourselves to connect, then we can see them, feel their pain, when we see those people around us who are hurting, do we recognize them as real people in need of real love? When God tells us to love your neighbor as yourself, do you know who your neighbor is? Or more importantly, are you willing to be the neighbor that someone needs? We are surrounded today by people who are afraid or angry, or confused. Let's find a way to stop our journey long enough to go to them on the roadside and do what we can to help. If that means listening to someone who needs to talk, then let's listen. If that means wearing a mask that we don't want to, wear a mask. If that means responding to anger with patience, be patient. If that means binding up someone's wounds and getting them to someone else who can help, then let's find a way to get it done. Love your neighbor as yourself. The question is not, who's my neighbor? The question is, will you be the neighbor who shares the love of God with someone who's hurting.